Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Repeat guest and fan favorite, Ash Fontana, uh, co-founder of Zeta Ventures, and then a friend and frequent co-investor to Village Global, Leo Polovitz of, of Sousa Ventures. Leo, Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thank Eric. It's great to be here. So let's start by uh, talking about venture. And uh, I'm curious about the future of venture, how, how you guys look at the landscape. Some people say, you know, Keith Roy would say, hey, it's, it's the same as it's been last few decades and it's not really going to evolve. It's still going to be, you know, masters of the universe like Keith ma- making decisions, you know, partnerships are going to look similarly. And then there are others, you know, uh, Ash, you started at AngelList, or, uh, you know, who say, no, venture is totally going to change. It's going to be data driven. It's going to be network driven. It's, it's going to uh, be disrupted. Um, you know, Balaji would bring up ICOs and crypto. So how do you guys uh, look at that question? I guess I'd start with the definition of venture, which is um, it's figuring out if a certain technology on the frontier works and then if there's a market for that. And there is uh, not a lot of stuff that can be optimized as part of that process of figuring out if technology works. And so I don't think if you define venture capital as that very early stage figuring out if technology works, I don't think there's much to innovate on there because by definition, it's reactive to what the frontiers of technology are. However, just after that, I think there's a lot of room for innovation, namely in the growth stage and in secondary markets. So in the growth stage, you actually do get returns to scale on efforts such as building customer networks and building talent networks and whatnot to help companies scale very, very quickly. And in the secondary markets, you could always get advantages from uh, more efficient marketplaces for equity. So letting employees sell equity into a market of investors or letting investors sell equity to other investors. There's so much there to be done. And you know that is something that we obviously thought about a lot at AngelList in particular. Do you, is that a plan to play a role in, in how growth or secondaries is is uh, going to change or do you say, no, we're going to stick to her? Oh, no, not not yet. Not yet. The core of what we do is is what we call venture capital on some, you know, it's very broad these days, but um, what we call venture capital is that first check to take a product to market, not post-product market fit. And that's the core of what we do. And if that generates additional opportunities at later stages um, to sell equity in different ways um, or to turn some of what we do into a little bit of a product or something else, sure, well, let's explore those. But no, no plans at all. And do, you, do you see Benchmark as investing at post-product market fit? Um, or I guess, how do you think, you say pre-product market fit, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, this is a great saying of everyone who invests before me is spray and pray and everyone after me is a banker. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do you identify, uh, this question for both of you, the, the stage that you invest in relative to the superpowers that, that you bring? Um, well, the non-offensive answer is earlier because it's subjectively true and smaller that's also true um look i think a lot of firms are these days are doing lots of different things um some are more tight in their focus like benchmark and some are more broad in their focus like gc and nea and sequoia um i think a lot of the firms that are called venture capital firms do at least some of what i would call venture capital which is 
backing a technology before it goes to market and taking it to market, getting it there. Um, but not all of them only do venture capital. Some of them do a lot of other stuff like growth stage capital. So I think based on that definition, I'm a banker. Um, we, we like to invest when a product's hit the market just a tiny bit. So they're the first few customers, maybe it's even just pilot customers that aren't paying, but you get a little bit of validation that the founding team's idea is you know, directionally in the right place. Um, I, I would say also in terms of where venture goes, I think the way funds operate will evolve a little bit. So I think there'll be more specialists and then more platforms and it'll be hard to be in the middle. Um, I'm kind of seeing that right now with syndicates getting tighter. Oftentimes, whoever's leading will either pick a partner that has a good platform if they don't have one, or if they have a platform, they pick a specialist that's relevant to the company. Well, another way of asking this question is, you know, arguably the best firms, you, 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 made a, you made a list and it's Sequoia, it's Benchmark, it's Founders Fund, it's in, in the next, we all sort of have some agreement over, over the top three. And then maybe if we name the top 10, there'd be like, you know, seven in agreement probably. In the next 10 years, is that going to shift or, or is it really a, you know, going to be the same with? Well, yeah, it'll shift because some will fail to adapt and some won't. And so if you look at who's in the lead right now, what's common between them? So, you know, who I would say is in the lead right now, who's done an incredible job at adapting to what the market wants. It's Sequoia and Andreessen and quite a few others, but let's just leave it at a list of two right now. What's common between those two is they really aggressively um, look for opportunities to adapt and change. And so, for example, like every year at Sequoia, you can pretty much see one thing they're doing different. And if you talk to people there, they'll say, every year we try to do at least one thing different or we try to adapt. And what's, you know, they've adapted not just in terms of how they prosecute venture, but how they construct their team. They're very good at generational change in particular. We haven't seen that go through at Andreessen yet, but at Sequoia, we have. And so, you know, what we can say will be true is those that fail to adapt will be gone. And those that, it's, there's, that leaves room and they can right. fill that space. But, but they're all generalists, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> there's an argument, I think a lot of people in venture would make an argument that if you're not a generalist, you can't succeed in venture. As in, and the way we put this at Zeta is, you need a market entry strategy because venture is sort of crowded. And the entry strategy is you either, as Leo sort of said, you have a really good platform that can scale in some way or provide unique value, or you're a specialist, so you can provide unique value. But once you're established, you have to be a generalist because you never know where the next opportunity is gonna come from. The corollary of this being, I think if you're focused on one type of technology or market, whatever, and never change, that market will die at some point or that technology will become a commodity at some point. Like if you're focused on, in 1989, software was a very small market and no firms focused on software. And Hummer Wimblade came out and said, we're gonna focus on software. Now today that sounds crazy, everything's software, but no one was doing that then. And um, you know that became a commodity eventually and that focus is no longer relevant. But so I think, you, you have to either have focus, specialization, or a platform, but only for so long, only to enter the market, and then you've got to be a generalist. Yeah. You know, when Keith Raboy went to Founders Fund, there was sort of this question that I asked, which is, is it becoming sort of like NBA free agency, where the NBA players have all the power more than institutions, and it's, it, it, you'll see a lot more swapping, and easily you sort of switching around. And he said no, because of the way that uh, vesting deals are, are, are structured, and the way partnerships are currently structured. Do you see that changing over time or 
Is it likely to stay the same? Unlikely. Um, so that's totally true. Like it's very, they're very high switching costs, so to speak, on the supply side of talent in venture capital, to be general about it. Um, it could change, but it would be completely based on LPs pushing for that change. And then you've got to think, well, is there a rationale for LPs pushing for such a change? Not really, because they want people to stay around for as long as it takes to realize a return. And in what we do, it takes a very long time to realize such a return, which is why the incentives are structured over very long time horizons. And so I can't think of a reason why that would change at the level of the people who are responsible for making sure a return is realized. You know, maybe at other levels it will change. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a very high switching cost if you're at a partner level in terms of giving up whatever you vested at your current fund to go to another fund. The one place where I could see it uh, changing a little bit is as we get bigger and bigger funds, I think the big funds can basically buy you out to some extent. So you give up your vesting, but they will give you a good enough upfront bonus that you'll just take it. You guys have different portfolio constructions, different ways that you structure your fund. And I'm curious to get to the crux of what you believe, you know, what difference you have about how you view the landscape or what, how maybe you differently, you interpret your skill sets in, in venture. Maybe Leo, why don't you talk about the SUSE portfolio construction and why you do that. And then Ash, you could talk about Zeta and how you see, see things differently. Sure. So we're a $90 million fund. Uh, about half of the fund is for follow-on and half is for initial investments. And so that $45 million will likely be about 35 checks that are million to million and a half at seed stage. And we have, uh, we have four partners. We just added a fourth partner last week. So the idea is each partner is doing, you know, three-ish deals per year, but sometimes it's two, sometimes it's five. Um, but basically doing about a dozen checks per year on average. And what we've seen is that works pretty well for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, we want to be concentrated enough that any, any specific company is pretty meaningful. You know, so if we if we did more of a spray and pray approach, I think even if we get a, a great winner, but it's one out of 100 companies, it just won't move the needle that much. Um, and we also want to make sure that the partners have enough time to spend with each company in a material way. Um, so it's been working pretty well for us. And I think two or three or four companies per year per partner is roughly the level that that's at. So Ash knows my, my argument here, but basically I, I'm curious, if you moved all your follow-on money to seed, you would have... Uh, you'd be able to do slightly more companies, have more ownership. And the reason why we've done that or done it partially is because we don't think that the uh, we don't think that it's been sufficiently de-risked to merit the increase in price. How have you guys thought about it? So I would say in general, we like to put in more upfront. Uh, so if anything, we've maybe you know shifted towards maybe 60-40 for upfront instead of 50-50. Um, a lot of it is because the valuations do go up really quickly at Series A and Sometimes it feels like a lot's been duress and sometimes it feels like maybe there's just momentum or, you know, it's a, it's a hot founder or something like that. Um, so we do like to put in more upfront. I think that's where the most meaningful decisions get made. I think if you make the right bets for that first half of the fund, even if you throw away the second half, you could still have a good return. Um, I think it's harder to do it the other way. Well, on the one hand, I sort of can agree with that because the degree of uncertainty between the seed round and the series A round doesn't really change that much because your base rate of uncertainty is so high. Like basically we know nothing about the potential success of the company in both rounds. Um, and so you don't really like from an informational perspective have more information between those rounds. And so using things like a Kelly criterion from horse racing 
also a very uncertain environment, <laughs> um, you, you shouldn't necessarily put more money in. So I sort of agree with that. However, if you think about where you um, earn all of the returns, it's in those companies that are extreme outliers. And so they're eventually worth many, many times your original investment. And whether you invest at a 10 or a 20 or a $30 million valuation in the beginning actually doesn't really matter in the end. And so therefore you shouldn't be too concerned about whether half your money goes in at five and half at 15 or half at 10 and half at 30. Um, and so therefore maybe even just a tiny bit more information is worth paying a lot more for given the impact on your, your eventual return. Um, so I, I think like you can agree with that, but you can also say it doesn't really matter what entry valuation you get in at. What matters is, is this going to be um, a binary return? And also it's about um, having enough cash in there, especially with you know, certain fund sizes, having enough cash in the company that you can return your whole funds to yeah. your LPs. Like, if you put 50K into something and it's 100X, like sometimes you still can't return your entire fund. So you've got to get enough capital in there. And sometimes you just can't get enough capital in the first round. But by the second, by the time the second round comes around, the company actually needs a lot more money and you can put more capital in, more of your fund in. And if you're quite sure it's going to be a good returning company or investment, you should do that because otherwise you just can't return enough cash. The, the worry we have, and we, yeah, we invest pre-seed and seed into is usually A, is that the A is more competitive, especially if it's a good yeah. company. And so we get adverse, if we have more capital, we're somewhat adversely selected. And if it's a good company or if it's doing well and it's a hot round, we're unlikely to get, like it's easier to get capital in upfront is something we're finding. Yeah, I mean, um, that's just a matter of like working hard and getting ahead of the round and you know, even going so far as preempting rounds yeah. or just working so hard for the founder that you um, that you get a get your pro rata or super pro rata. Um, the other thing, of course, to keep in mind, which is more of a contemporary consideration, is getting diluted out or getting um, terms put on top of you in later rounds these days, uh, which which certainly happens and. It's one thing to have the ear of a founder and the trust of a founder such that they protect you in later rounds. Yeah. It's another thing to be a significant capital contributor to later rounds to enable you to protect your initial investment. Yeah. How do you think about sufficient diversity within your follow-on practice? So you have 30 million, 40 million for follow-on that, that could go into you know really big checks into a few amount of companies or that could be spread among all the companies. How do you, what, what's sort of the right ratio or how do you, how do you think about that? So there's a couple of buckets for follow-on. One that's pretty important is we lead a lot of seed rounds. So we have some follow-on allocated just in case companies need a little bit more runway and more time. And so as the lead, we will often kickstart those rounds. So we have some funding set aside for that. Um, I would say more broadly, most of the follow-on is for series A's and that'll probably look like something, you know, like a million dollars per company and maybe 20, 25 of the 35 companies. And that leaves a little bit for maybe the top five companies for us to also follow on at the Series B. Um, and then we recently raised a, an opportunity fund to do bigger checks at the Series B and C when we feel it's appropriate, but those are much more rare. And I spoke to Chad about, hey, the opportunity fund, I said, why not just put it all in the first fund? And he said something that was interesting. It was basically, basically, hey, if we're a 150 or $180 million fund, I think the optically we start to be seen as competitive with some of these other, other seed firms. Or, and, or, and so you know, we want to be collaborative in market. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the other advantage of having an opportunity fund is it, it actually sits on top of our first three funds. 
Um, and so it doesn't have to just follow on into fund three. It could follow into fund two or fund one companies that maybe took a little bit longer to mature. A lot of people say it's important to have one company that can mature in the entire fund. Why is that an important um, sort of metaphor or framework? So there was some interesting data from Horsley Bridge, which is a large fund of funds um, that they published a few years back. And it basically showed that of, their, of the funds they'd invested in that were 3x or higher, and I might be getting the numbers slightly wrong, but of the funds that were 3x or higher, something like 95% had at least one fund returner. And so the idea being like, maybe you can get to a 3x fund by having a bunch of 3x and 5x and 8x exits. But statistically, it's very, very rare. So the, you know, I guess the base rate is basically if you have a 3x fund, it's probably because you had at least one company that returned the whole fund. Yeah, it's given loss rates. And so with loss rates, you know, as low as zero for some funds, not many, but like in the 40s to 60s, um, as in 40 to 60% total zeros, then you need a multiple fund returner um, to make up for all those holes in the ground. Yeah. Are there moats in venture besides brand? Like, do you, you know, Leo, you, you study moats when you invest in companies, right? Do you, do you think there are moats in, in venture capital or how do you think about that? So I guess one way to measure the moat is the pricing power of a company. And so specifically for a venture fund, it might be, you know, can you offer a lower valuation than another fund and still, still get, you know, still get the founder to accept your offer. So I think brand is definitely a big one. Um, I think expertise and a specialty that's really relevant to the founder could be another big one. So for example, I imagine Jason Lemkin can probably get a really good price premium for a SaaS company, uh, but maybe not a non-SaaS company. Um, I think another thing that really helps is expertise in an area. So, you know, if you've been investing in fintech for five years, you've, you know, you've worked with 50 companies, you've met a lot of great execs in the space, you know, banks, kind of all the relevant players. I think that gives you an advantage in terms of how much you can help a company. Yeah. Um, and so I think that can also lead to a pricing advantage when you're making an offer. Well, it might be, uh, might be useful to consider the other side. So that's like the demand side, um, um, demand side competitive advantages. What about the supply side? That is with LPs. And so if you start where Leo started, um, what's the evidence that a VC fund would have some inherent value or some competitive advantage? It's that they're able to charge higher fees to LPs. Um, so that's perhaps how you would measure it. How would it come about? Um, it would come about by having brand power with LPs. It would come about um, by sort of building that up over a really long period of time. Um, I guess th switching back to the other side, there could be some other competitive advantages in VC. So for example, um, access to proprietary opportunities, sourcing. Um, it's like an, an uh, cheaper input if you sort of try to analogize between VC firms and, and a manufacturing company. However, I think those tend to be competed away pretty quickly, just like a trading strategy for a hedge fund. Like if you have some data set or some network or whatever else, I think they tend to deliver you unique opportunities for a while, but not forever. Um, another advantage uh, VC firms can build is I guess, loyalty from entrepreneurs. And so that comes in the form of serial founders where you have like, you know, by loyalty or habit or whatever else or relationship strength, they come back to you for their second or third company. And that is, that's like a strictly a competitive advantage because you've put no extra effort in and you've got a huge reward from that. Um, so that's maybe another one. Um, I think scale can be a competitive advantage in venture in the same way because 
if you invest at the early stage in a company and it's doing really well and they need another $50 million, if you don't have scale, as in if you don't have a lot of assets under management, if you don't have a lot of cash, you can't, that opportunity just passes you by. Yeah. But if you do, again, you're putting no effort in, no incremental effort, and you're getting to put more capital to work at a high rate of return because you just have that capital available. Uh, on the scale side, I think one other thing I would add is I think platforms can be a competitive advantage as well, or remote, mostly because they're based on the amount you could put into a platform depends on the fees you collect and the fees from funds stack. And so if you're in your third fund, you might have fees from coming in from fund two and fund one as well. And so you might be a $100 million fund that has the budget of a $300 million first-time fund. Um, so somebody else with a first-time $100 million fund just can't spend as much as you on resources for founders. Yeah. Another one um, people would think about when they think about companies is IP. So IP is a form of competitive advantage. And what, is that, what would that look like in the venture world? Would it look like proprietary knowledge of um, how to value companies, how companies are built, maybe a proprietary investment process or something like that? I think the reality is that you know, knowledge of any particular technology or industry in venture um, falls in one of two buckets. Either it becomes irrelevant really quickly because the technology changes, or it develops so slowly in, you know, in the example of like knowing how good companies are built that you can't actually reutilize that knowledge quickly enough to make any money out of that or to get any competitive advantage from that. So all of that is to say, I don't think there's an IP-based competitive advantage in venture, or if there is, it's very minor in the form of like maybe process or something like that. How do you think about the moat at SUSE? Um, because it's, it's not, ob you guys are crushing the game like Zeta, like Village Global, uh, you know, very big, uh, <laughs> yes, totally. uh, very big outcomes, but there's no obvious LeBron James, except you, of course, um, or it, it's just unclear what, what you exactly you are crushing it. Like how do you sort of make sense of, of your mode and, and why you're doing so well? Yeah. So I think one thing we really tried to focus on is building a community around the fund. We do an annual ski trip for founders and investors. Um, that's actually been great. We've had some term sheets come out of that. It's like a nice, a nice way to unwind a little bit from all of the stresses of you know day to day being a CEO. Um, but also, you know, it's a good chance to meet later stage investors. We do a lot of small dinners, uh, sometimes just for founders to get together because they're working on you know ideas in a similar sector or they have a similar role within their companies. Uh, we'll do expert dinners. We'll connect founders a lot one on one with each other. So. I think those kinds of things grow over time. And so I think... It's like first round, platform as community? Yeah, a little bit. And, and also maybe maybe closer to YC, where you know, a lot of times people join YC because they really love the network. Um, so I think that's something we've really tried to cultivate. Um, and I think also we just, we hustle pretty hard, like, well, which sounds really trite when I say it. Um, but, but I think we try to work really hard. We spend a lot of time with founders, like... We'll, we'll try to be good partners. You know, we, we won't screw them. Like, we'll, we'll try to help even if they're, you know, whether they're, uh, you know, a rocket ship company or they're struggling. Uh, and so I think all of that stuff over time builds up into, you know, a stronger and stronger brand. And so I think we're happy with how far we've come in the last few years. I think we have a long way to go, but we're going to keep working on the same stuff. Pricing power. So you just mentioned YC. YC is sort of the elephant in the, in the room in terms of having a moat because they have, you know, people talk about spray and pray, but they never criticize YC. And YC does, you know, more companies than anybody, basically. Um, but they're able to get 7% and they get good companies. It's unclear that they're, you know, picking worse than SV Angel or I don't know, any of the other sort of relatively high volume funds. How, um, 
how do you think that evolves uh, over time? Do you think it's a fool's errand to try to have pricing power today in 2020 in venture? I, I think about it as there's always room to price a risk that others can't price. And so this is a hard thing to articulate, but like what does pricing power mean in a business that's really about pricing a risk that's very subjective in how it's priced? And so, you know, if you have a fund, I'll try to explain it, you know, using a, an example. If you have a fund that says this company is worth 10 million and a fund that says this company is worth 8 million and the founder takes the 10 million price, do you want to be that fund that invested at a 10 million price? Because you might be completely wrong. You might have priced the risk the wrong way. Or even do you want to be the fund that priced at 8 million? You sensibly you have pricing power because they accepted the lower valuation, but the company could actually be worth four. So you had relative pricing power, but you, had, you were absolutely wrong. Um, so do you want do you want that? So I don't know. I think it's a funny thing to think about in our industry. And what I would instead focus on is just finding opportunities first and finding opportunities that other people can't understand and doing your very best job to price those opportunities and value those companies. And, you know, if no one else is around, you'll have no idea of whether you have relative pricing power. But what you do know is that You've done something no one else can do and you didn't have competition. Yeah. So at least you didn't get competed up. Right. You might still be wrong, but at least you didn't get competed up. I would say just you know, fundamentally for any investment you wanna make, having pricing power is better than not having it. Right. So even if you get in at a 10% discount, you know, maybe that means in the long run you have you know, a 4X fund instead of a 3.5X fund. So that could be pretty meaningful. But I, I agree with Ash. I think the, the key is really to focus on companies where you can move faster or you can price them better than others, where others just won't invest at all because they don't see how the math works and you can make it work because you know something special. Yeah, and there's a long um, set of list of examples here where you know the companies that generated a huge amount of the returns in the industry were companies that no one else wanted to invest in at the time that super successful investment was made. And you know, for what it's worth, in our case, we have been in many situations where a founder has accepted um, you know, a valuation that we have given them that's been lower than others because they saw an opportunity to work with us and how that would actually increase the value of the company over time. But I never get solace from that. It doesn't matter. I actually would prefer not to be in that situation because of the reason Leo said, like there's someone else around and maybe they understood something that I understand anyway and maybe that means that the technology is further along than I thought and whatever else. So. And maybe I'll add one more thing, which is I want to make sure it doesn't sound like we're just trying to get the lowest price possible because I think for me, I try to think about what's the best long-term price. And you know, if a founder will take like a million dollars for 80% ownership, you know, we can claim we have pricing power and we got a great deal, but in truth, you know, that company probably won't be able to raise in the future. They're not going to go really far. So I think for me, the goal is just to get a fair price. And, you know, if the market's really competitive and the prices feel inflated, my hope is that, you know, with our brand and the services we can offer and things like that, we can get closer to what we think is a fair price without necessarily lowballing. Yeah, that's a really important point. And to put another spin on it, effectively what you're um, setting up when you invest in a company is the capital structure of the company which in involves the incentives for the executives of that company. That is, you know, for us, after we invest, we want all the people working on the company to be sufficiently incentivized to make it super valuable. And 
they won't be if we buy too much of it because they're effectively if you know the example they gave if they if 80 percent of all their effort goes to someone else then at some point they're going to get over it if um, we've been talking about criteria of great companies and comparing it to venture, how is venture uh, similar and different to, to company building? You know, adventure often there's no CEO. Um, I mean, there's lots of ways in which which is different. Do you think it should be more like company building, or do you think no, it's actually a fundamentally different thing and should be treated differently? Yeah, I think it's a totally different thing. So, um, harking back to one of my favorite essays of all time um, from the early 20th century about the nature of the firm. Um, there are the question of like why do companies exist at all is a good one to start with and you know what was posited in that essay was companies exist where it make where it's efficient to coordinate internal factors of production as in more efficient than externally coordinating them so for example it's more efficient to put all the parts of a product together in one factory under one roof with one company than it is to distribute the production of that thing over a like complex supply chain involving lots of different companies. And if you think about, you know, a startup, it's way more efficient to have everyone in the same room with a very strong product leader to like really tightly iterate on a product and get it out to the market. Venture firms are not like that. We are completely outward facing. Our job is to distribute capital and then make sure the companies we invest in do well and help them. Um, and so we're, I would argue that any internal optimization is a waste of time, anything at all, like beyond the absolute bare minimum. And what you want to focus on is just, is, is, is everything external to you, like all the companies you have put capital into, because you're not trying to optimize anything internally. You're just trying to get the capital out and then help them optimize whatever they're trying to produce. I think also, um, I think companies and venture firms have different roles for employees. So at a company, you know, you have specialists, maybe somebody's in charge of marketing, somebody does engineering, somebody runs product or like builds the team and sets the vision. I think at a venture firm, most of the partners are in you know, principles are largely doing the same role. And it's less clear that you need somebody to coordinate people, especially because a lot of times the role is pretty solitary until you bring it into for everyone to see it. And so it's, you know, either one partner is looking at it or everyone's looking at it, but there's really nothing to optimize at that level. And I think it's also less clear that you need a CEO to organize things. Um, I do think on the non-investing side, like for the, for the firms that are building platforms or have recruiting arms or things like that, they'll often have a COO or head of operations. And that effectively ends up being the CEO for all the non-investing stuff. Uh, but on the investing side, I don't think having like a CEO or a clear leader really makes sense. Yeah, the other thing is um, venture is a primary research business, right? Like most of the information you get relevant to making a decision to invest in a company is directly from your interaction with the founders, your phone calls with their customers, working through their materials yourself. And, you know, getting that information is something that most of the time, as Leo said, can only be done by one person. You can't have 20 people in a room with a founder um, for various reasons. And so therefore, like, what's really the purpose of having a whole bunch of people above the person who does the research? Because um, all they're going to do is just engage in like convoluted reinterpretation of the primary research. Um, and what's better is actually just really empowering the person doing the primary research, uh, the person meeting the founder and whatever else, to make the best decisions they can make rather than 
um, just question everything they can through multiple layers of hierarchy, f staffed by people that never interacted with the primary source of information being the founder. Who are the customers here? Founders or LPs? And who is it better to have sort of a, you know, the most power with or the most sway with or most differentiation with? For me, it's clearly the founders. Um, I think if you have the best LPs, that's not going to appeal to any founders. Uh, but if you work with the best founders, LPs will, you know, will follow. Yeah. It all starts with the founders. I mean, the LPs are your customers and you need to serve them with the information they need and um, serve the relationship in the best way you can. And you are the fiduciary of their capital and all that sort of stuff. But um, as Leo said, none, none of it matters if you're not creating any value. And we create value by being sort of an intermediary between those two. Um, maybe one other thing too is if you think about who is your customer, the way you frame that makes it sound like you're creating a product for somebody. And I think for the LP, the product's just the returns. And they don't really care if you have a platform, if you have 12 partners, if it's just you, but you pick really well and you have lots of bandwidth. So I think for them, they just care about the results. Uh, for the founders, they care a lot more about, you know, who do I get to work with? What do you offer beyond the capital? And so I think that's where, you know, thinking about what you offer as a product makes a lot more sense. But the, I mean, LPs, everyone's, you know, funding, make, making the funds exist. My question is, how much a tail wagging the dog do you think in venture, meaning LPs have sort of an idea of what they want as a product and the venture firms sort of back, back into that? Because there doesn't seem, it all sort of looks the same <laughs> um, to, to some degree. And there are things that LPs are categorically, you know, skeptical of, or like accelerators, for, for example. Um, how much do you see sort of the LP wag, wagging the dog here or them being more open-minded to it? I mean, on the ground, I don't see that much at all. Like, you know, I'm... Maybe I'm lucky or whatnot, but like the LPs I interact with and work for, um, they're not telling me how to do my job. Right. Um, and they don't sort of hold strong opinions about that. They're very good sources of counsel and advice on our strategy. Um, but I don't see that on the ground in a very simple sense. I guess what I would always say is the incentives set the strategy or the incentives sort of govern the behavior more specifically. And, you know, there is there is an opportunity for LPs to set incentives in such a way to make it more or less attractive to invest in certain um, certain companies, like take more or less risk on a shorter or longer time horizon, um, put more or less capital to work, and then that can affect your strategy. So for example, you know, having management fees the way they are, people are incentivized to have big funds. Um, having carry the way it is, people are, in, or having, having carry the way it is, people are incentivized to, you know, invest in big winners and having fund lives the length they are, people are thankfully incentivized to invest on a very long horizon, like 10 years. And therefore we can find companies really early and support them for a really long time till they get all, make it all the way. Um, so I think the incentives they set like very much dictate what happens in the industry. If you were an LP, uh, would you rather be in uh, for the same amount of money? YC, first round or benchmark? I see. Why? Um, because for the next decade, for the next two decades, depends what sort of LP I am, I should say. But if I wanted to deploy a lot of capital over a long period of time, I think it's fairly clear that they have generated YC has generated enough investment opportunities that could go in enough different directions that I'll have many opportunities to deploy capital at different levels of risk and at different quantum. So, um, I think if I was an LP that was really close to and loyal to YC. 
there would be lots of opportunity for me to, de to deploy capital at lots of different levels of risk-adjusted return, which is really nice for me because it means I don't have to go and find 20 other investment opportunities or 20 other funds. And so I just think it's um, a really good platform in that sense. Um, and then there are like semi-objective measures of their pricing power. As we said before, they're getting in earlier and cheaper and creating a lot of value. So maybe I'll take a slightly different angle. I think I would bet on Benchmark. They've had such a long history of generating really outsized returns and not outsized like 4x, but outsized like 30x. And I've done some napkin math on YC. You know, I might be way off, but I think I came up with them probably being something like a 5x or 7x fund, which is really amazing. But I think what happens is you get an Airbnb, but you have, you know, 200 other investments that aren't Airbnb. And so, you know, you end up with a 5x or 7x or something like that. And so I think with Benchmark, they've shown for, you know, about 20, 25 years that every, almost every vintage, as far as I know, has been like really amazing. Um, so I think there's more variance there because they have smaller portfolios by far, but I think there's a much higher chance of hitting, you know, like a 20x fund, which I don't know if you could do that with YC. And you also don't see YC as unbeatable necessarily. I think they have a very hard to surmount lead right now. So I would say they might be beatable, but I think it's more about if they lose their way than if somebody else yeah. uh, attacks them. I do think there's a lot of opportunity um, to compete with them in specific verticals or specific types of founders. But I think as like a general accelerator, uh, I think they're hard to beat. Yeah, that's another way to think about it, which is operational risk. So um, as an LP, Leo said, lose their way potentially. As an LP, you've got to think about operational risk. And that increases as you have more partners, more types of funds, more geographies, all that sort of stuff. Operational risk increases. This is more points of failure, more people that can go and make bad investments, more people that can come and go and do something bad. Whereas with Benchmark, the operational risk is so low because there's just not that many people there doing not that many things. Um, so I think the operational risk of one is way lower than the other, but you know, my view is the potential or the option value in one is way higher than the other. And then competition, I mean, they're both susceptible to a huge amount of competition, to be honest. Yeah. Like there are very credible alternatives to YC popping up, like Entrepreneur First. Yeah. Um, and there are comp competitors YC has had for years that are actually doing really well that no one talks about. Like Techstars are still doing well, yeah. still doing good stuff. Yeah. Um, and then Benchmark obviously has many competitors like every Series A fund. Yeah, and I think the, the Village program, for example, has also been great. Yeah. We've already invested in companies from it. I feel like Angelus hasn't reached the full vision that it set out in 2010 or 2011, it, it, or what it was. It's achieved some of it, but I feel like, and it's it, to some extent, it's sort of scaled back. It's, it's somewhat like Nixon saying we're going to cure cancer in 1960, and then the 80s is like, well, maybe we can make a little bit of progress. What happened there, um, and where are we in that development? And then, Leo, my question for you is, you used to work at LinkedIn. People are saying we're going to disrupt LinkedIn for like... Mm. 15 years or ever since it started, what's actually going to disrupt it? Yeah, this is a great question with respect to both companies because, you know, as we've seen in the technology industry for years, like single companies can have massive impact. So with respect to AngelList and also with respect to LinkedIn, I guess, like both had huge visions to start with. And so the fact that may, even if they have scaled back, like, is that okay? And should they be held accountable to their original vision? No, of course not. Um, it was just so big to start with. Um, what happened there? Well, one, uh, rubber hits the road, right? Like you, AngelList in 
in particular is in a business where a lot of the value it creates is in generating investment opportunities and the way which we chose to be compensated for that was carry because that is provides us with a lot of option value and carry takes a long time to realize we have to wait till these investments exit and so we also have to fund a business day to day people have to be paid um, and you can fund that with venture capital for a while or you can fund it with profits and so AngelList has undergone a transition in the last couple of years to in various parts of his business whether it's product hunt talent or fundraising be profitable and that requires certain trade-offs um, so I think that's one part of it um, another part of it is it's just such a dynamic system and that has both caused um, AngelList to do new things instead of you know, double down to existing business. So started CoinList or um, invested in Product Hunt or whatever else. Um, and it did all of these things and that took some resources away from the core business. And there was, there was a good reason to do that. These are all exciting markets like the crypto market, but it meant the core business slowed down a bit. Um, the other thing is the industry's changed around it. Like, you know, a lot of what we originally thought we would do at AngelList is now being done by Carter or now being done by YC. Um, and so other people have done good things too. So I guess for the industry, a lot of the things AngelList thought would originally happen have happened. They just haven't all been done by AngelList. Which, which, which part of YC get? Um, I think probably what they're doing with the continuity fund is something that AngelList does do, but could do more of. That is just systemic semi-systematically invest in opportunities that generated at the really early stage at the later stage. Um, I don't have a good informed take on AngelList. For LinkedIn, so I was there about 15 years ago uh, in the 15 to 50 person phase. I think one thing they got really, well, two things they got really lucky with is one, that was right when social networking was really emerging. So you had like Friendster, MySpace, Facebook. So there was a ton of competition on the consumer side um, and, and on like consumer social and very little on professional networking. And so LinkedIn basically had the chance to grow for, you know, four or five years with no competitors. And what that ended up giving them was basically an insurmountable lead. Um, and along with that, they, they tried several monetization strategies. They got lucky there because usually a company can monetize, you know, one thing and they've managed to find three or four revenue streams that are all really meaningful. And so now, you know, 15, 16 years later, the product definitely feels like it's stagnated quite a bit, um, but it's become such a core part of how people share their professional histories, you know, how they apply for jobs, how recruiters find them, that I think it's really hard to disrupt even with the product not being you know, that great these days. Um, I think the opportunity is, you know, there's some, there's some possibility on more vertical specific networks. So you kind of see GitHub for engineers, maybe you see something like Dribbble for designers where you know, people in those roles, instead of using LinkedIn as a resume, use something else. Um, I think there's also maybe a potential for people to start finding jobs in a different way. So a service like placement could do something like that, where, you know, instead of applying with a resume, maybe you're applying through this agency that helps, you know, that's basically a talent agent for you. And then that disintermediates LinkedIn a little bit. But I think it'll be, you know, a 10 or 15 year journey for one of these companies to to take that place. So Leo, you've thought a lot about data moats and how they're increasingly becoming more important. Um, how do you both make, make sense of, of, of their importance and how do you think about it in terms of your investing point of view? Yeah, so I really like data moats. Um, 
So I think there's different kinds of moats and specifically the kind of really focused on over the last few years are the ones that compound over time. And so if you have something like a patent or maybe an FDA approval, there's a lot of value in that. But as your company doubles in size or 10x is in size, like the value of that moat and competitive advantage doesn't really increase. Uh, but if you have a network effect or maybe you have some proprietary data set that keeps growing as you get more customers, then basically the bigger your company grows, the harder it is for somebody else to catch up to you because your network effect grows, your data grows. So data moats are really interesting to me where if you find uh, a data set that's proprietary, that's valuable, that you can do something useful with, I think you can build something that's really hard for people to copy. Like even, even large organizations like Google often can't copy something if they don't have the right data set. I think the challenges are that it's really hard to get truly proprietary data. Sometimes you get it and you find out it's not that valuable. So I think it's it's very difficult to build a moat like that. But once you have it, I think it really keeps you in the front for a long time. Echoing what Leo said, they're, they're very exciting as a form of moat because of the way in which they compound. They're very hard to build. But I guess I would just emphasize the amount of opportunity left to build them, which is if you just pick any industry in the world, there's a data set you can either get or compile or whatever else across the industry that no one party has today. And so, you know, there's a data set of the prices of a particular good or the errors that occur when producing this particular thing or the salaries people are paid or whatever else, pick anything in any industry or you know, how something looks, like how a piece of food is meant to look or how a crash car looks or whatever else. There are all these data sets that no one company in an industry can build because they don't have a full representation of reality because they only have 5% of the market. That a new entrant, a new neutral entrant like a startup can come in and build by getting all those companies on board. So, you know, one term I have for this is like building a data coalition. And an example of this is perhaps in e-commerce. So if you're just an e-commerce company selling like, um, you know, bicycle gear, uh, you can't really compete against Amazon on experience because Amazon search is so much better. Why is Amazon search so much better? Because it has, it has more data on people and what they want. But if you're this little bicycle company and you buy a product from, a search product from a tech company, a startup that works with 50 other e-commerce companies, they might be able to provide you with search that's as good as Amazon's because they aggregate that data across all those companies or across their customers. So I think there's just opportunities like this in every single industry and there's a lot to play out there. Um, and then in terms of requests for startups, um, there's a few that I have in mind right now. One, in terms of data generation and like building data modes, there is a lot of promise in synthetic data generation, particularly in Vision, and that is you know, creating systems that can generate examples of something based on a few parameters. Like I want 10,000 examples of chairs that are brown and have four legs, but in low light and at this angle. You know, to go and find those images of chairs out there is really hard. Um, but to develop an algorithm that develops, the, the, that produces those is pretty easy. And I haven't seen that many startups working on synthetic data generation. And that can be really useful to train a model to recognize such a chair, for example. Um, another one, if you think about data sources that um, are out there, but are very sort of piecemeal, um, is and that are really important to collect so that we can train models to help us solve problems, is on our climate. 
And so, yeah, sure, there's weather data out there, but weather data, what does that mean? There's data on you know, collected from weather stations, there's data collected on land, data collected at sea, data on wind, data on water. There's all sorts of data out there, but there are lots of, there's lots of data we're not collecting, like undersea data and temperature data. There's lots of data that we're collecting, but it's collected by a government and then not published anywhere, or it's collected by a little company that doesn't sell it to anyone. So there's a lot of ways in which I think we can collate and create information or data about our climate that could be really useful. So I'm really interested in that as a second one. Um, and then the third one I'm really interested in, which is a little bit controversial given that Amazon just released a whole bunch of stuff and Google's running full pace at this, is automatic machine learning or what people call auto ML. And that is making it really easy for normal um, non specialist engineers to experiment with machine learning um, and you know to process huge amounts of data or whatever else they're using it for and I think there's just so much work to be done to make that so much easier for people that Google and Amazon can't possibly do all of it um, they're not possibly going to have a complete suite of auto ML products um, so I, I want to meet more people working on that those are great areas on on the request for startup side, one area I'm interested in is interesting applications of ISAs or income share agreements. Uh, specifically, I like companies where they're not doing just the financing piece, but they're bundling the ISA with some interesting product, whether it's coaching or training or, you know, I think I saw one company doing uh, immigration visas. Um, the reason I'm interested in the space is Ash has talked a lot about incentives and incentive alignment today. And I think ISAs are a really interesting way to realign incentives between the service provider and the customer. And I think I also like that they often democratize access to things that are really expensive and before only available to people with good credit or existing assets. Uh, and instead, you can charge based on the value you create for them instead of their current assets, which I think is great. My guests today have been Ash Montana and Leo Polovitz. I, I, uh, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, I highly recommend you get them on your cap table if you can. Uh, Ash, Leo, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 